From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. Last month, the California Reparations Task Force released an interim report detailing California's history of slavery and its impact on the state. The task force was created in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Its goal is to examine what a reparations program in the state could look like. The idea for reparations for slavery itself is not new. It stems from the value of enslaved labor, which in 1860 was estimated at over $3 billion. This forced labor built the backbone of the American economy, but enslaved people nor their descendants have ever seen the economic benefit from their labor. In fact, Black Americans have systematically been denied opportunities to build and accumulate wealth since the country's founding. Advocates of reparations argue this is one of the most effective ways to decrease the racialized wealth gap. Joining us today are Tamerlan Drummond, a communications strategist at the ACLU of Northern California, and Brandon Green, director of the Racial and Economic Justice Program at the ACLU of Northern California. Tamerlan is also the host of Gold Chains, a podcast that explores California's ties to slavery. And Brandon worked with the California Reparations Task Force, helping build the interim report. Tamerlan, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for having me as well. So I want to start with some ground setting, though I did mention some of this in the in the introduction. First things first, what are reparations and what can constitute reparations? Yeah, Uh, There are a lot of things that are being called reparations, but reparations is payment for harm done. So from my vantage point and I think many others vantage point, reparations is direct cash payments. Now, there are other things that can be uh, helpful in terms of closing generational wealth gaps, uh, opening up access and other sorts of things. But most directly and most succinctly, reparations is payment for harm. And that payment, to my mind, should come in the form of direct cash payments and shouldn't be tied to any sort of programmatic outcome. So if I was given a million dollars because the harm that my family endured, I should be able to spend that million dollars however I choose to, whether that is buying a million dollars worth of Jordans or uh, putting that money up investments or spending that money on housing or buying a fancy car that I wanted or paying for my kids' college. And where does this idea of reparations come from? Where were reparations first used or suggested in our history? Reparations um, in the context with which we're using it most readily, what comes to mind is reparations for Japanese Americans who um, had to endure uh, the horrific treatment in internment camps. However, you know, one of the earliest Supreme Court cases Uh, was on the issue of reparations um, and uh, former uh, enslaved peoples uh, fought for reparations um, all the way to the Supreme Court um, and were denied that. So, you know, the fight for reparations for um, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans in America dates back almost uh, to our founding. I would just add in the more recent past, you know, we had... um Congressman Conyers, who for years tried to get a national uh, reparations task force and, you know, I believe introduced that bill every year. I mean, going back to the late 80s. 
And you're talking about HR 40, is that correct? HR 40, correct. HR 40, which actually the California Reparations Task Force, I believe, is a bit patterned on that. Uh, so there has been that push for some time. And, you know, that is definitely still within the Congress, although at this point, you know, it's kind of stalled because of the makeup of the Senate. Yeah. So the bill uh, was stalled in House committees for more than 30 years and then finally moved to the House floor in 2021. And you're suggesting that there is probably not a lot of hope to kind of pass that through the Senate. Well, with the current makeup, exactly. And from a national perspective, what is the public support around reparations? I mean, I think that's a a tough question to answer. And uh, in part, it's tough to answer because after the murder of George Floyd, there was at least a lot of lip service paid to uh, racial reckoning, right? Um, However, what we've come to see is that a lot of that was just that. It was it was a lot of talk. So there's been a lot of articles written on the racial reckoning that wasn't. So initially, there was a groundswell of support. However, what we've actually seen is sort of a recalcitrance, um, the same sort of recalcitrance that we've seen historically when it comes to issues um, that directly impact um, Black Americans. And so um, while at one point, uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, uh, both as a entity, a movement, and a catchphrase had a lot of public support. Um, that public support has dwindled. Now you've seen things like direct opposition to critical race theory, um, even though most of the people opposing it can't actually tell you what critical race theory is. I think one of the challenges, just to follow up on what Brandon is saying, is that a lot of people don't know anything about the history. And so they think that, you know, that basically this is all about a big, you know, uh, handout. So that is also sort of ties into the why of why there isn't, why we aren't seeing kind of more public support, I think. Let's just go there since you since you brought it up, Tamerlan. Um, I would love to focus on California because because of the reparations effort that is focused there um, and because of your work as well. So California was admitted to the union as a free state, but is that misleading? Well, it technically came into the union with a constitution that banned slavery. Uh, But what happened was you had a lot of Southern uh, white men, basically, who got a stranglehold over the reins of the early government. So they pretty much ran the courts. You know, they controlled the legislature. They controlled all the local offices, police departments, etc. And they pretty much used all of that power to do everything they could to do an end run around, you know, the ban on slavery. So unfortunately, a lot of children are learning untrue history. And that's part of what we're trying to actually correct with the uh, ACLU of Northern California Gold Chains Project is to, you know, try to help educate people. I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about the Gold Chains Project and also the, the specific podcast series that, that you host. Sure. Well, basically, you know, as you all know, 2019 was the 400th anniversary of 1619. And, and you know, that became the year that You know, we had a lot of discussion, public discussion about slavery and the legacy of slavery 
we started thinking about California and the fact that, you know, no one was saying anything about California. It was almost like the implication was that California never had slavery. And so we really decided to use that energy around the discussion about slavery and its legacy today to really delve into, you know, this kind of underbelly of California history. You know, we supposedly are this golden state of opportunity. So we really wanted to get into the role of California government in, you know, basically perpetuating the enslavement of both Black people and of Native uh, people. Um, and so the project is, um, it's a website that includes a lot of stories about, you know, we wanted to focus on specific laws and how that impacted uh, people and the role of the state in perpetuating slavery. Um, we did a podcast spinoff. <laughs> and uh, the first episode deals with California's own fugitive slave law, which many people do not know that we even had. I mean, a lot of us learned about the federal fugitive slave law uh, in school. And of course, that allowed uh, private, the government basically required private citizens and others to hunt down black people who had managed to free themselves and get out of these slave states and get into free states. But in California, that federal law did not cover uh, enslaved black people who managed to get away from their enslavers when they were already in California. Because since California is a free state, these people would go to court and their enslavers would say, this is my property, I want them back. And the courts would say, no, you know, they're in a free state, you know, you're not entitled to them. So basically the, you know, pro-slavery dominated legislature uh, basically passed a law to close this loophole that basically said that if you were a black person and you had been brought into California prior to official statehood in 1850, which was most people because people had been forcibly brought here to work in the gold mines. You were enslaved and you had no right to freedom. Uh, you could be deported back to the South. In fact, that was the law. And when the case went to the Supreme Court, our state Supreme Court said that, and I quote, the, um, the ban on slavery was uh, just a declaration of principle. It was never meant to ensure freedom for enslaved black people. And so our first episode looks at the test case that tested that and, you know, just the terrible decision uh, that came out of it and that affected uh, the lives of these uh, three formerly enslaved miners. I do want to play an actual excerpt from the podcast. So this is Stacy Smith, one of the guests uh, who has uh, one of the guests from the podcast. She's a history professor at Oregon State University and an author of Freedom's Frontier, a book about California's history of slavery. Uh, no, actually, if we look at California and, and in some respects, really places in the broader West during this period, we actually see that many of the same conflicts, especially over slavery and race, are happening in California at the same time as in the rest of the nation. Enslaved people didn't come to California willingly, right? Uh, the California dream was not for them. It was for the white Southerners who claimed ownership of them. And so that really goes kind of counter to the stories that we tell ourselves about not only what the gold rush was and what it was supposed to be, uh, but also really kind of what California is and what it's supposed to be. So I think it's important that we lay this groundwork of California's history and also talk about uh, this concept of the California 
dream and what, who that is accessible to. What was the California dream at the time and what does that look like now? And how, how, does, how do reparations play a part of the California dream? Well, in terms of what it looked like then, I can speak to certainly, you know, gold is discovered in California in 1848. And, you know, this unleashes the gold rush and you have, you know, more than 300,000 people pour into California, you know, over a period of a couple of years. And no matter who you are, what your skin color is, you know, you can come West and if you're willing to work hard, you know, you can strike it rich. Uh, but what a lot of, you know, black people found when they got here, because there were also a number of free black people that came who really fought to carve out a piece of that California dream for themselves. And, you know, some of them were quite successful, like the enslaved miners from the podcast we were just speaking about. However, even when they did manage to, through their own hard work, earn the tune of something like $100,000 in three months, and that's like $100,000 in today's money, you know, it was taken away from them. And, you know, they were forcibly deported and their monies were seized. And, you know, they never saw that money again. As Stacy says in the interview, it was not a dream for Black people or the Native people who were already here. I mean, it was very much, you know, a white person's dream. I want to talk about what that looks like today in California. So a 2016 study on the wealth disparity between Black and white Americans in Los Angeles. So this is just in the city of Los Angeles. It stated that the median net worth of native LA white households was $355,000, while the net worth of their black counterparts was $4,000. The median value of liquid assets for white households was $110,000 compared to just $200 for black households. These numbers are um, just staggering to me. Uh, I wonder wh what you all make of this and, and how do we see California's association with slavery in these numbers? I mean, I think if you peel back the layers of a lot of those things, it's representative of a number of things that we know, right? We know that um, Black college graduates take on more loan debt than white college graduates. We know that Black graduates make less money than um, white graduates, right? And so even the things that are supposed to be the on-ramps to uh, economic uh, prosperity don't work the same way for Black folks. Um, we know from studies that Black folks who um, start uh, in the lower financial rungs um, and somehow claw their way up uh, within a generation or two are far more likely for their family to fall back down, right? Um, home ownership, which is always talked about as uh, sort of like the great generational wealth uh, equalizer. We have the recent um, news articles about home appraisals. And if, you know, you have your, your white neighbor um, stand in for you, uh, then your house gets appraised at a higher rate. So, you know, in America, um, approximately 50% of all unhoused people are Black. Um, in California, Black folks are overrepresented in the unhoused population at the highest rate, right? Um, Black enclaves are being gentrified at high rates. 
Oakland, for example, has lost the majority of its Black population over the last decade. Um, and so all of these things are things that are systemic racism that are built on um, the policies, practices, and systems that were born from um, slavery, from Black folks always having a secondary, even sort of like inhuman categorization in America. We talk about these things like they were uh, hundreds of years ago, um, but uh, my mother went to segregated schools all the way till high school, right? My grandfather served in the military at a time uh, when uh, he was stationed in Las Vegas, but could only live in one place. This is yesterday. Um, you know, we talk about these things like they're um, hundreds of years ago, but they're they're not. These things um, are right now. And so when we're talking about like how wealth accumulates over time, my mother was the first person in my family to get past uh, fifth grade, first person to graduate high school. I'm the first lawyer in my family ever, right? So like the way that we talk about these systemic factors and the systemic racism that has borne all the things that we see right now, um, I think um, sort of is misplaced. Um, and when you look at the unhoused population, for example, um, that intersects with the criminalization of Black folks, right? So Black folks are overrepresented in the criminal legal system, they're overrepresented in the unhoused population. Um, they're overrepresented in being denied for jobs, being denied for housing, right? All of these things um, uh, build upon each other, but all of these things come from the exact same place, which is Black folks not being treated as equal or as human. And you're right. It is yesterday, as you said, that, you know, segregation was still occurring and, and people were kept from opportunity. So I want to bring it to reparations specifically. The task force was created by Governor Gavin Newsom, who's the current governor of California. And this, like we said before, happened right after George Floyd's murder. Tamerlan, what, what can you tell us about the origins of, of this task force? So I know that shortly after uh, we released the Gold Chains Project, which was in November of 2019, our ACLU of Northern California office was approached by uh, then-Assemblywoman Shirley Weber's office. She's now, of course, our Secretary of State. And they were very interested in carrying this bill. In her words, they were just tired of waiting for the federal government to act uh, on H.R. 40. And that, you know, California, as she says, as people like to say, as California goes, the rest of the nation goes, that we could really be the first ones to do it. And that this, if we were successful, that it would really have, you know, tremendous impact and could set, you know, sort of help lay some of the groundwork for some of these other states. So that is how that initially came about. And, you know, the law was ultimately, it was, it was signed into law in uh, 2020. And that is when the task force began holding these series of, uh, of meetings. And what have these meetings looked like, Brandon? How have you engaged with the task force and what have you told them? Sure. So these meetings have been uh, topically uh, driven. Um, so there's... Uh, meetings on sort of the history of enslavement in America. There's been topical discussions about homelessness and gentrification. And all of those things came together uh, in the interim report, uh, which is an extremely 600-page 
comprehensive uh, report that details um, not only the history of um, Black folks in this country, but all of the ways in which systemic racism is still impacting them um, now. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to be part of a um, of like a ad hoc group of organizations who uh, were meeting and talking with each other about the ways in which we could um, influence uh, the task force. Um, and then was lucky enough to to testify before them. Um, and now everybody is sort of um, taking in uh, the report, taking in the recommendations and thinking about what our next steps are um, to bring some of the things that are recommended in the report uh, to fruition, um, either through legislation or other means. Um, and the next report, which will be due out next year, will go into sort of uh, even more detail about what uh, the actual reparations uh, may look like and what recommendations may uh, rest uh, on that particular issue. Brandon, if you could, you know, I think it might be helpful to understand uh, the from the task force's perspective, right? How could reparations actually materialize in California? What the task force decided is that those who have a lineal attachment to African slaves would be those who qualify for reparations. That is uh, direct descendants of enslaved Africans in America who can prove such uh, would be entitled to reparations. Um, And so, you know, this is important because that means that they limited the points in time that we are talking about the harm, right? So uh, that reparations would solely be based upon, um, from my understanding, slavery, right? Even though we know that the harm persisted. And that also means that some of the other things that we've talked about, right? Some of the other diaspora communities who come here and are now seen as Black, for example, would not be eligible those folks could seek uh, reparations um, from the colonial powers that their descendants were enslaved by. But squarely on the issue of reparations, uh, that would be those who have a lineal uh, attachment to um, American enslaved Africans. When you talk about proving your lineal connection, that that seems like a burden to put on people. And often, you know, oftentimes those are very confusing and complicated inquiries. To me, that that feels like a another yet another barrier to put on to this kind of a program that's supposed to, you know, alleviate barriers. Yeah, I mean, it's in it's I mean, for a lot of Black folks in America, it's incredibly difficult to trace back their lineage. So for me, I can only trace back like two generations, maybe. Um, And there's the other side of that, that, I mean, maybe part of the perverse side of this is that in order for Black folks to prove that they qualify for reparations, they have to hope that the white folks who uh, own them kept impeccable records, right? Um, if those records are somewhere that uh, can be easily be found or have been digitized in some way, um, et cetera. The task force has thought about this and one of the recommendations is setting up a sort of bureau that is similar to like a Freedmen's Bureau uh, that would be helpful um, in sort of like creating the apparatus for folks to have the access and resources to prove 
that connection. And I think one of the most important things, not only for the sort of cash payment aspect of reparations, um, but for all the other programmatic things is to have that office set up within the state government, because um, once you have a bureaucracy, it's relatively hard to get rid of it. Right. I want to talk a little bit about the models that we've seen throughout our history and also even in more recent history as it pertains to reparations. So, you know, we have mentioned that in, you know, 1990, the government issued paper checks to Japanese Americans kept in internment camps during World War II. Before that, the government paid $1.3 billion in reparations to Native Americans for the seizure of tribal land. However, this turned out to be less than $1,000 per person. And instead of the money being given directly to the recipient, it was put into trust accounts. What lessons, and, and this could be for either of you, what lessons can we take away from some of these past reparations efforts? I mean, at the risk of of uh, maybe coming across controversial and, and flipping, which I, it's not my intention to do, but um, I mean, I think we almost necessarily have to look at um, this like, like it's not going to be enough money, right? Like it's it's the the harm the harm that was caused even if we calculate it, which at this point is in the many, many billions of dollars, right? And the hope is that this would just be one part of like a national movement, right? But I also think that it is unlikely, and I hope that I'm wrong, but I think it is unlikely that whatever the amount is, is going to be generationally transformative, right? Like, um, if we're not talking about $100,000 or more, right? Like, it might be helpful, but I think it might probably not be, be transformative. Let's just take, for instance, um, home buying in the Bay Area. A friend of mine recently purchased a house in the Bay Area and was lucky enough to go through a bank that offered a first-time home buyer program. This first-time home buyer program would give you a lower interest rate, right? A below market interest rate. So right now, three percent, um, rather than like the inflation interest rate that's like five percent. But in order to qualify for that program, you would have to have twenty percent down. Well, a home in Oakland right now is probably going to be somewhere between eight hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars. So if we're saying that it's going to be a million dollars, and that would mean that you have to have $200,000 to even qualify for this first-time home buyer program. So if the reparations is something like $10,000, right? Like that might be helpful for paying off debt. It might be helpful for like propping up some um, some savings, uh, putting some money up, um, helping pay for your, your kid in school or daycare. Or like, But there is like a number that makes it different than like the immediate need and only being able to think about your immediate needs and be able to think about your immediate needs and like plan for the future of you and those that you love. Well, I would just say that even even the, the modest proposals that we're talking about are going to require just a real movement of creating some kind of public support because 
you know, all this conversation is happening at the same time, like Brandon mentioned earlier. We have school districts in, you know, Southern California. You know, they're having the same feuds over the teaching of so-called critical race theory as everybody else. And if you don't have, this is one of the things Shirley Weber mentioned, you know, you have, say, a lot of, you know, white Californians who say, well, I, my family didn't own slaves. You know, why should, you know, I don't have any responsibility for that. Why should my tax dollars go to pay for reparations? And again, it's that people haven't been educated to understand the role of these, you know, successive policies that, as we talked about, home ownership. You know, you quoted these statistics earlier. Well, why does that look like that? Well, because people weren't entitled to get loans for these homes at a time when they could have been affordable with like a decent, you know, loan from the federal government. You know, so now everything is sky high and, you know, no one can even get into the market. Yeah. And I I think that's really important, Tamerlan, to note that, you know, we're in this kind of ecosystem of national dialogue that is not really looking favorably upon reconciling with our nation's history. I mean, public opinion studies have said that only 38% of Americans support cash payments in the form of reparations, while 62% were opposed in 2021. So how, how do you think that we can move forward knowing that we have, on one side, this amazing report that has has detailed all of the ways in which California could be, uh, that it is harmed by systemic racism and can be alleviated or opportunity could be opened up um, by reparations. And we have on the other side of this, the other part of the ecosystem is this uh, national dialogue and kind of where that's at uh, about critical race theory, about just teaching accurate history, because it's actually not critical race theory. How do we orient the public in the right way? I mean, how can we direct people who who really do want to be helpful in this effort? I would first say, you know, um, engage with the report yourself. Um, um, if you don't have the, the time or ability to read it, it's it in its entirety, then um, engage with the uh, with the executive summary, with the findings, um, and the recommendation sections. Um, and uh, as you engage, share with those around you, um, um, because I think that to Tamerlan's point, um, you know, public engagement, public education is going to be extremely important. Um, but more so, you know, again, this is American history, and so um, to to fully understand sort of where uh, our country is now, you have to understand where it has been. I agree totally. The public education piece is really key. And, you know, that was part of one of the components of the the law that created the task force, AB 3121. One of the things that they stressed was really, you know, we had to have some kind of public education campaign to teach people about the history. I mean, in California, you know, kids go to public school here. They have no idea that the first governor, you know, Peter Burnett, was this like major racist who tried to ban all the black people from the state and then tried to exterminate all the native people. I mean, he actually actively called for these things and gave speeches about them to the legislature. Um, 
So the, the, one of the things that we're really trying to do with gold chains that we're hoping can be part of this effort is through stories, you know, really powerful storytelling about, you know, this just isn't a report with facts and figures. You know, these were real people in California. These were real people who were stripped of their, their liberty, you know, their ability to prosper. And a number of people, even in spite of that, they fought and they fought and they continued to fight. And that, that's the legacy of the movement around reparations today. And one thing I've been really happy to see is the number of teachers who have reached out to us about the Gold Chains Project and who are using some of that material in their classrooms. Because, you know, we hear all the time about, you know, parents and who are opposed to the teaching of, you know, so-called hard history. But there are a lot of folks in California who really have a hunger for this knowledge. And I would certainly, not just in California, but elsewhere, you know, encourage people to come and, you know, visit the Gold Chains uh, CA.org site. And there's other resources provided there as well. And I would just say that, you know, these hearings will be ongoing. Um, and, um, you know, there's still room for uh, engagement. There's still room for learning. Um, most of the hearings are, uh, some of them are done in person, but there's always a virtual component um, to it. Um, and so I would urge people to to get engaged for their own edification, their own knowledge, um, et cetera. Great. Thank you all so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, and thank you for sharing the the project, the Gold Change Project with us. And Brandon, thank you so much for your work uh, with, the, with the task force. We, we are deeply grateful for all that you guys do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. A listener note before we say goodbye. We're taking a hiatus during the month of August. We hope you have a nice month and we'll be back with new episodes in September. Okay, until September, stay strong.